tonight's scripture reading is in two parts. One is from Hosea chapter 11 verses 1 through 8, and the other is Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. This fall, we are looking at the inner life of the Trinity. And we have seen that at the center of the universe lies a relationship that God has eternally existed in a community of three. We've also seen that we're made in the image of a relational God, and that means that we are built for relationship, we're wired for community, that we need intimate relationships in order to flourish. And last week, we looked at two ways that the members of the Trinity model healthy relationships. We said that they they did two things simultaneously, or they held them in tension. On the one hand, they, they have this deep attachment to one another, this deep connection, this deep bond towards one another, and we looked at that. But we said that they, while even while they were connected to one another intimately, they still had a sense of separation or, or difference. They were their own persons. They were their own individuals, and that they held those two in, in tension. So the two fundamental, fundamental characteristics of an intimate relationship that we see in the Trinity are connection and differentiation. Well, tonight, I, I thought before moving on, we'd look a little more closely at the first part of that, uh, about connection. God created us to connect. We need to connect in order to flourish. Dan Holbrook sent me a story this week that illustrates how important connection is to human flourishing. Uh, Professor Jim Cohn of the University of Virginia uh, somehow convinced people to become a part of a famous study called the hand-holding study. And Dr. Cohn strapped electrodes onto a person 
and then I'm kind of abbreviating this, but essentially uh, shocked them. And how these professors get people to do this, I don't know, but he did. And sometimes the person being shocked uh, had their hand held by a loving friend. And other times, no friend at all. And they put electrodes on them, and they identified the nature of the anxiety levels as they went through the shock. And they found that when a loving friend was holding your hand, the stress and the anxiety was much less than when you're doing it alone. Now, interestingly, they also found that when a, uh, just a, a lab tech held your hand, that helped a little but not much. That you needed to, to have someone who loved you, caring for you, uh, for it to make much of a difference. So it's an illustration of this, this God-designed principle that we are built for connection, and life has its series of shocks, and we need that kind of connection to endure them faithfully. Uh, we need that kind of connection if we are to be the kind of people that God calls us to be, if we're to serve our neighbor in the way that we're called to serve our neighbor. But the paradox is this. Even though connection is, is, is perhaps one of the most important relational practices, it's also very hard to do. And most of us struggle to connect. I'd be at the head of the list. Um, Larry Crabb, who we've been referring to a bit in this series, the writer, he begins one of his books by talking about a time he was walking down, I guess, a Florida beach or something like that, and he, he looks at a, a retirement village, and there's like a hundred retirees sitting on deck chairs staring straight out. And none of them are talking to each other, but they're just all staring at whatever they're staring at. And he said, to me, that, that's how I often experience the church. We're all in chairs facing one way, uh, just staring straight ahead with very little interaction with one another. He said, uh, isn't God's design that we turn our chairs, that we move towards one another and be- begin connecting? And I think that's something that we want to do as a church and something that we're working hard to do. Now, it is very difficult to do. Uh, a, a man, a friend of mine once told me he had been divorced when he was 25. He's probably 65 when he said this. And he said, you know, for 40 years, I've been terrified of any kind of intimate relational connection. I've been afraid of it because of the wounds that happened from my first marriage. Uh, it, it's not easy to do this. So we face a dilemma. We need to connect, but we find it hard to connect. So what do we do? Well, last week uh, we saw that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who helps us connect. So this is not something that you can just go to a workshop on and figure out. We, we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do this. But we also notice that God is a vulnerable God. And that his vulnerability is central to his capacity to connect with, with us. Uh, you know, this was kind of a new idea in the, the history of ideas about God. Uh, God, in, in the Greek thought, did not feel anything. As a matter of fact, the idea of a vulnerable God 
repulse the Greeks. You may remember that famous story where Prometheus has compassion on the human beings and gives them fire, and Zeus is so upset that he sentenced Prometheus to an eternity of torture with having his liver pulled out because he was ungodlike by having compassion. And Plato said the same thing. He said God was passionless. Aristotle believed that God was unaware of the joys and sorrows of a changing world. But the God of Scripture is a vulnerable God. The Hebrew word for, or rather the English word for vulnerable comes from a Latin word that means to wound. So to be vulnerable is to be open to being wounded for the sake of love. Uh, to, To be open to being hurt Uh, for the sake of relationship. And that's exactly what God does in the Scripture. Uh, We get a great glimpse of that in the book of Hosea. Hosea marries uh, Gomer, a prostitute. Uh, She leaves him for someone else. And God says, you know, Israel, that's what it feels like to be in relationship with you. you. It's like you committed adultery on me, and it breaks my heart. And that wonderful passage that Sandy read so beautifully from Hosea 11 reveals God's broken heart. Uh, I'm going to read a little part of it again from uh, the New Living Translation. It has a little different feel to it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved. I taught him how to walk. I led him along by the hand. But he doesn't even know or care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I was the one that lifted the yoke from his neck. I stopped to feed him. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How could I ever let you go? My heart is torn within me, and my compassion overflows. So God makes himself vulnerable. He enters into a covenant relationship with Israel. They've broken his heart. God, because he loves Israel, opens himself up to being wounded. And as we'll see, that if we want any kind of intimate relational connection at all, that openness to being wounded is required. There's no other way to do it. Now, the New Testament continues the story of a vulnerable God who opens himself up to be wounded for the sake of his people. The father sends the son to die for the sins of the people he loves. And Paul speaks about that vulnerable love in his letter to the Philippians. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human. And when he appeared as a human, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So really the gospel story is the story of a vulnerable God, the story of a God who pursues us, who opens himself up to being wounded in relationship for the sake of love. The only reason, the book of Ephesians goes into a great deal to tell us, that you and I can have relationship with God is because he first was vulnerable, because he opened himself up through his son. Now, when we think about this through Scripture, we have reason to believe that God's openness to being wounded is part of his inner character. In Revelation 13.8, Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain 
before the foundation of the world. And so this orientation towards love, this this bent towards an openness to being wounded for the sake of love, was hardwired into the Trinity from all eternity. As, As someone said, the Trinity, or rather the cross, is at the heart of the Trinity. The cross is at the heart of the Trinity. Before the world was, the sacrifice was already in God. So vulnerability makes love possible. Vulnerability is why we're here tonight, the vulnerability of God. Vulnerability makes connection possible. And if we are to connect, if we're to turn our chairs, we have to embrace vulnerability. Um, C.S. Lewis put it like, <laughs> put it like this. Uh, put it like that. I feel like a weatherman that's just kind of... To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. That's even true of dogs, isn't it? It's true of animals. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Is that what you've decided to do? No more dogs. Not gonna, not gonna bury another one. No more deep friendships. Not gonna bury another one. It will not be broken, Lewis says. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So vulnerability is the secret, or one of the secrets, to connection. Now that raises a few uh, questions that I thought we'd... And remember, this part of the series is, is uh, application-oriented. So I want to ask a couple of questions as we as a community uh, continue to try to turn our chairs together. The first question is this. With whom am I to be vulnerable? We touched on this last week. Obviously, you can't have intimate connection with everyone. You can't turn your chairs towards everyone. Jesus did not reveal himself to everyone. Uh, How do you know who to be vulnerable with? I need to say there's some great books on boundaries out there today. However, we need to be careful with some of that literature because the boundaries literature can essentially be a rationale for not loving. I mean, if, if, you essentially, if, if you essentially use the language of, I can't move towards that person because they'll hurt me, you, you, you'll never move towards anyone. But having said that, I, I don't believe there, there is a rule. I think the answer is, follow the Holy Spirit. Move towards the people in your life that the Holy Spirit is moving you towards. I think that's the only rule. Share, be vulnerable, turn your chair towards those whom the Spirit is calling you to move towards. Now, why is it hard to be vulnerable? I want to expand on this a little bit from last week. We talked about, first of all, we've been hurt. Everybody's been hurt relationally, wounded, rejected, misunderstood, betrayed. So we decide that we're going to never be hurt again. Second, 
We are sinners. Our fallen hearts develop all sorts of ways to protect ourselves from being hurt again instead of trusting in God to protect us as we move in love and in vulnerability. Uh, Isaiah 50, verse 11 God says, but watch out, you, live in your, you who live in your own light and warm yourself by your own fires. You'll receive this reward from me. You'll soon fall down. And what he's saying is, hey, Israel, you're lighting your own fires. You're keeping yourself warm. You figured out how to survive apart from me. Well, keep going. You keep lighting your own fires and see how that works out for you. And we all do it. Instead of turning to the Lord to protect us, we trust ourselves. Uh, Larry Crabb, in his book Inside Out, <laughs> says this. Uh, Creatures of heaven. Uh, there may be a, a, a slide before that. Is there? That's the last part of the quote. There we go. Um, although our self-protective strategies are foolish... Even when we get the safety we want, we realize it's not what we want. We still cling to our right to protect ourselves. We demand that our pain be relieved. That core demand must be faced before we'll give it up to repentance and learn to redirect our energy into love. And actually, I'm confused, but go ahead to the other part of the slide. The demand to keep ourselves safe is strong. We look in all the wrong places for the relief our soul desires so badly developing a style of relating designed to protect ourselves from the pain that we fear. So here's, here's the hard word for the night. The reason why we struggle with vulnerability, the reason why you decide not to share all yourself with your wife, the reason why you bounce from relationship to relationship and always hold on to a part of yourself Yes, it may be that you were wounded, you're from a divorced home, and and all that stuff. True. But the bottom line, the real reason why we're not vulnerable is sin. If you have said, I have been hurt, and I'm not going to let someone hurt me again, I'm going to make sure in this relationship no one hurts me again, you're sinning. Because you're lighting your own fire. You are protecting yourself. You're not asking God to protect you. Wounds and sin keep us from vulnerability. Now, what does it look like? Third question, what does it look like to move towards someone vulnerably? And and this, to me, is, is, is a tricky question because... I think sometimes we think that means, well, okay, Doug, you're saying I've got to be a drama queen and cry all the time. And that's just not me. One of my things in my bucket list, I have a rather uninspiring bucket list, but I I, I wanted to read Tolstoy's War and Peace before I died. And I started listening to it, and I may not finish it before I died. Uh, And I've been slogging through it. And lately, for what seems like hundreds of pages, I've been bogged down in this endless stream of Moscow dinner parties where the action consists of nothing more than Natasha falling in love with Anatole 
and them writing letters back and forth where they say Russian things like, I can't live without you. I must die if you don't come tonight. And I'm not saying that we have to live in a Russian novel to be vulnerable. We don't have to be overly dramatic about all of our feelings. Vulnerability doesn't look like that. As Myers-Briggs test shows, we all have different temperaments. We all express ourselves differently. Not one is better than the other. I think it's almost certain Jesus was an INFJ. But other than that, (laughs) we're all different. So rather than a list of coming up with, uh, uh, these are vulnerable behaviors. When she says this, you say that. Um, I think what we should move towards is is establishing a posture of the heart that is Trinitarian in its bent. An orientation towards the people we've turned our chairs to that is open to being wounded. See, I think the skills of good connection follow a heart that is open to risk and faith. You can teach skills all day about relating. But if your heart is fundamentally shut down, you're not going to connect. Somebody said it's like putting makeup on a corpse. You can make it look a little better, but you're not going to give it life. Now, Brene Brown, many of you have heard that name. She's a professor that gave this very popular TED Talk on vulnerability. And she says that one of the things that keeps us from vulnerability is shame that we have a sense that we're not acceptable, and so we we don't disclose things for fear of being rejected. And I think that's a good point. If if that is fundamentally where you are, you'll be terrified of vulnerability because you've given the other person the power to destroy you. But Ephesians says we're rooted and grounded in the love of God. And if you're rooted and grounded in the love of God, you can disclose things about your life and not risk destruction, because nobody has the power to destroy you. So I think she's, she's on to something there. And, and one of the things that I'd suggest is as we think about our relationships, as we think about turning our chairs towards each other, as we think about our people and our families and all those things, that instead of focusing on, boy, I didn't connect with her, next time maybe I'll ask about work. Let's instead look at our hearts. If I'm struggling to connect... Is my heart open to being wounded? Or have I shut it down? If I'm struggling to connect, is my heart rooted and grounded in the love of God, which frees me to take risks? Or is my heart covered with shame, which makes me so terrified of you that I never let you in? Now, just a thought before we move on about secret keeping. Um... Secrets are very hard to bear for, for a long time. Uh, and, and, and family systems often are built on a web of secrets. Now, I'm going to tell you this, but please don't tell your sister. Now, I'm, I'm going to let you know about this, but if your father knew, it would kill him. And sometimes the secret just kind of lurks like a ghost, uh, bangs around, rattles around the family. It's it's unfair for someone to ask you really to keep a secret. That's in a family system. That's that's a very heavy burden to put on yourself. And 
one of the things that I would suggest is that hiddenness in relationships, darkness in relationships, uh, create relational infection. That that, that bad stuff um, grows in the shadows of our families and friendships. Now, again, I know there's confidences we have to honor and all that, but I'm just saying part of vulnerability is having somewhere where you can share your secrets. I can't imagine that God would want you to go to your grave with some things that only you know about. We're just not made that. We're not made to carry that kind of a burden. And before we move on to the last part, Brene Brown has has this concept of what she calls a vulnerability hangover. (laughs) And she said after she shared this powerful TED Talk, and it really is good, um, and it's gone viral and it's very popular and made her very famous, she said she went in, went home, locked the door, and didn't come out of her room for three days. And she was just bombarded with shame. That I can't believe I said all these things about myself. And, and now I'm so humiliated, how could I ever do that? I think that's a pretty common response. And, and, and as a Christian, we would say that's perhaps some spiritual warfare. That, that when you do disclose some things to someone you trust and care about, it's, it's, it's often common to have a vulnerability hangover. I'd watch this happen for years. I'd go in the fellows' retreats, and, and they'd tell, I don't really do it anymore, but they'd tell stories, these powerful, intimate stories, and someone would share it on Tuesday night, and on Wednesday morning you'd notice they'd be kind of eating their breakfast like this. Like, oh my goodness, did I really say that last night? And normally, if the community would process that, it would lead to deeper intimacy. But if they didn't, it it could lead to more shame. Now, the last question I want to wrestle with briefly is, what role does vulnerability play in mission? What role does vulnerability play in whatever ministry you have in our community? Well, this is very overgeneralized, but... I think I see a shift taking place in the body of Christ, or at least a little tiny part of it that's here, from a transactional approach to ministry to a vulnerable approach to ministry. In other words, approaches to evangelism and mercy that are primarily transactional, um, the evangelistic crusade, um, the turkey giveaway, uh, even the short-term trip, are giving away to approaches that are more uh, vulnerable, more risky, um, where you're open to being wounded because you're moving into relationship with someone you're trying to care about. Uh, an illustration, just uh, last summer, uh, finished up the swim team. As I shared with you, very burdened for some of the children, but it was over, didn't know what to do. So, some of us that were involved started to pray about it, and God provided through the swim team over at UT, it's called Tennessee Aquatics. Now, they essentially offered to scholarship about nine of our kids. And, and, and so that's a remarkable thing. I mean, this, is, this stuff costs hundreds and thousands of dollars. And, and now uh, some kids from at-risk neighborhoods are, are getting the same things that kids in Farragut get. It's really cool. 
and you've been wonderful, and people have been raised up, and we're, we're uh, driving them there on Tuesday nights, and somebody's providing a meal for them, and uh, now we're starting to move towards tutoring for them after the meal, um, some things like that. Well, that was the first step. And, we, and, and for me, this idea of the Spirit leading towards vulnerability and mission and relationship has been very much on my mind. Well, I just kept praying, Lord, I feel like there's something more. Well, he gave me a heart for, for one or two of the kids, and I started to, to pick them up. And as I picked them up, I began to get there and learn more things about their family, and uh, the mother began to share a little bit more with me. I saw some things that were, were not good. Well, then I get a phone call from a teacher at the school. One of the children is uh, failing out of school. Could I come to a meeting? I go to the meeting. A very painful, powerful meeting where I get a window into the world of a child uh, who, who is trying to make it in a world like this. And then I find out some of it has to do with a medical problem. So Tuesday I'm going to the doctor with with the the folks. And all along the way, I'm I'm fighting because I'm getting closer and closer and I know I'm going to get hurt. Now that sounds very selfish. But I've gone from a transactional approach towards caring for a person, got them in, got them out, to more of a vulnerable approach where now we're doing things I was trained you never do. I mean, we're changing emails. We're changing cell phones. We're, we're you know, it's, it's pretty intimate. And the last time I show up there, a guy who's been showing up uh, looks at me, gets in the car, runs away. I go in, the, the mother's crying, and I find, find out that this, this individual is a bad guy. And he's bringing bad stuff into the home. And I don't have any idea what to do about it. You know, Bob Lupton spoke uh, at CARM, and he's just uh, a mentor to many uh, who moved into Atlanta 40 years ago. And a part of his story is, is he was called to move towards at-risk neighborhoods. And the first thing he, he and his wife wrestled with is, well, what do we do about schooling? Because the schools were like in the bottom 15th percentile. And, and uh, he and his wife decided to put their kids in that school, and then put a bunch of resources from their little community into the school to help the school thrive, and, and uh, he, his kids were raised there in that school, and I just thought, whoo boy, that is being open to being wounded. <laughs> That's pretty radical. But you know, it doesn't have to deal with someone living in East Knoxville. It could be your mother was Alzheimer's, it can be your next-door neighbor who's going through a divorce, your, your roommate that's depressed. I mean, any time you decide, all right, my roommate is shutting down, I've got a test tomorrow, but I'm going to try to find out what's going on in her life, you are opening yourself up to being wounded. And that's where real ministry happens. Right there. Right there. And that's also where you get crucified. So as we continue to turn our chairs to each other, and I see an awful lot of chair turning going on in our congregation, let's remember that this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. 
But the Holy Spirit is drawn towards a vulnerable heart that's open to be wounded.